Upgraded kitchen, new patio deck, home office? Do more with your home this year with an Arundel Federal Savings Bank home equity loan and take advantage of your hard-earned equity. Enjoy fixed interest rates, fixed monthly payments, and up to a 15-year term. One loan, endless possibilities. Visit ArundelFederal.com to view rates and apply online. Conditions apply. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS number 671636. Can you imagine a rainbow of flowers? In a crystal blue sky. Filled with music. And all your friends are there. And everyone is laughing with joy. And the whole world is clean and sparkling and singing like Pavarotti. Put on your wings and fly. Invite us to your house. We'll only be there a few minutes. Our clean and shiny trucks haul away your distractions. And leave your home sparkling with joy. All you have to do is point. Call 1-800-GOD-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOD-JUNK.COM. Welcome, everyone, into Garden Views this week. We have a very special guest. It's Professor... I just did the one thing I said I wasn't going to do, try to keep it from playing twice. So we have Professor Patricia DiGennaro. Uh, I think I got it right this time. Uh, And let me just read her bio because it's really impressive and I don't want to miss anything. So she holds an MBA in International Trade and Finance from the George Washington University, and she is an MPA in International Security and Conflict Resolution from Harvard University. She's also the first person I spoke to who went to Harvard University who didn't tell me they went to Harvard University in any of our conversations and not in the second sentence. Uh, She speaks fluent Albanian and has a basic knowledge of Italian, Arabic, and Dari. Let's talk a little bit about what she's done professionally. She's a senior fellow and project lead for the Balkans Next Research Initiative at the Joint Special Operations University. She came to the Joint Special Operations University from U.S. Central Command, U.S. CENTCOM, Combined Joint Task Force, Operation Inherent Resolve, where she was a senior social scientist focused on strategic communications and influence in the U.S. CENTCOM area of responsibility. Previously, She supported the U.S. Army's Training and Doctrine Command of Operational Environment Training Sports Center. Professor DiGennaro was an adjunct professor at at New York University's Department of International Affairs for almost 15 years, teaching courses on international security policy, civilian and military affairs, and terrorism. She has been a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and a visiting scholar at George Mason University's School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution. She capitalizes on over 20 years of experience as an academic, military advisor, and practitioner in international security. Much of, much of her work focus on, focuses on the in, information environment, countering terrorism and violent extremism, and transitioning nations from war. She spent considerable times in the Balkans, the Middle East, and Afghanistan on information operations, security, civilian and military affairs, provincial governance, capacity building, and joint interagency, intergovernmental, and multinational coordination. During her tenure, she's consulted with USAID, the Department of State, and senior military officers, as well as the Asia Foundation, Director of National Intelligence Office, 
Department of Homeland Security, the Conference Board, World Bank, the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee, chaired by Senator Edward M. Kennedy, rest in peace, and several organizations that support the Middle East peace process. She spent four years in Albania as a small and medium enterprise volunteer with the Peace Corps. So if you were saying to yourself, oh, part of the war machine, nope, we've got a bleeding heart in there somewhere. So four years in the Peace Corps and later as an economic development consultant with the U.S. Agency for International Development. She's published several articles on U.S. foreign policy and national security topics. The focus is to encourage a grand strategy for integrated international policy that looks beyond war and the use of force. She is an expert commentator for CNN, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, Fox News, BBC, and various nationally and internationally syndicated media outlets. So yes, indeed, that was a mouthful, but I didn't want to miss a thing in that. Thank you so much, Professor DeGenero, for joining us. Welcome into Garden Views. How are you doing this evening? It says so. Yeah. Well, there's still plenty of conflict, conflicts to resolve, and and you have to help peace break out. So. Well, the world is very good at, at balkanization. And with that, that's called a segue because you spend some time in the, in the Balkans. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm almost a professional at this point. Uh, so at, at, maybe we should touch on what you've been doing most recently with the Balkans. What, what is the NATO action in the Balkans now? I mean, we all remember when Bill Clinton was president and the Kosovars and Milosevic. And well, I don't know if we all remember it, but if you don't Google it, it happened. Um, but What's what's going on there now? There's actually a, a statue of, of President, former President Bill Clinton, in um, in Kosovo, in Pristina, the capital, because they uh, thank him a lot for their uh, their independence and their survival from a lot of the conflict and war that was going on there between them and and Serbia. So. Um, I think, yeah, that's a very interesting way to start. Well, right now. Um, I've been lucky enough to work uh, and advising the military on on trying to get that get them to think a little broader, a little beyond war, and a little about what do we do during peacetime and what how do we keep peacetime and and shape that environment instead of you know constantly planning and looking for the next adversary, the next way to get into conflict or the next conflict we might like to get in, like overthrowing another leader. Um, so uh, I was asked to come and take a look at the situation in the Balkans now, particularly um, because of uh, what we all know is the newest conflict that we are keeping eyes on in Europe, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So once Russia decided to surround and systematically invade different parts of Ukraine and is continuing to do so, and Georgia for that matter. Um, I think the the U.S. and our European allies finally uh, woke up a little bit uh, and and said, you know, we better pay more attention 
because uh, there's a possibility that this conflict might spread south. And there are indicators of that. I think, I'm not sure Russia is exactly wants that, but they're certainly taking advantage of some of the internal animosities that are still ongoing where some of the population still does trust Russia more than the United States and, and other parts of the population there have been wanting to get closer to the West and join NATO and the European Union and, and the like, and they trust the U.S. a little more. So there's still a lot of that ongoing um, kind of challenge happening there in the U.S. and its allies right now don't want to see it get any worse. So we're taking a look at the Balkans, seeing where some of these fissures might still be, um, and they certainly are, you know, largely historical if we like to go back to the Ottoman Empire and through the Austro-Hungarian, I can talk on a Tuesday night, <laughs> that empire as well where, where Hungary and Austria still have tremendous influence on some of the parties and different parts of the populations there. So um, this is historical. It hasn't, it's never been resolved, even though we had hoped it would be resolved in the early mid-90s with the Dayton Accords and the ceasefire um, in those particular uh, parts of, of the new countries that came out of Yugoslavia and the former Soviet Union. Um, so we're kind of looking at better ways to engage there so we can um, help create a, st a stable and resilient environment, which is in the best interest of most of us Westerners and definitely countries of Europe. Sure. I mean, it, it's close to the Suez Canal. It's, it's close to the Straits of Bosphorus. It's right there in the middle of Europe. You know, it's a, you know, used to be the, you know, maybe not exactly the gateway of the, of the spice or the Silk Road, but it was, you know, sort of the first part of Europe, you know, part of that is what I guess they call Thrace for, for a while, um, long time ago. Um, but Somebody must be doing something right, because one of my concerns was about Serbia. And Serbia has actually been sort of quiet, at least publicly, on this. And, and there was a point where Russia seemed to ask for Serbia's support. And Serbia was like, not so fast. We're in the middle of dinner now. Um, so, you know, I love that analogy. <laughs> and they're not part of NATO, but they're sort of keeping quiet. If this was 20 years ago, they would have been like, go Russia, whatever you need. Um, and so do you think that has anything to do with the work that you're doing? Do you think there's anything with, with the, the NATO and Western response writ large, just like, nah, you know, if, if Russia, you know, took Kiev in three days, like everyone thought they would, maybe we'd be on board, but now it's 13 months later and, and they seem to not, not be doing so great. And they have, you know, whatever, 200,000 casualties and thousands of, vehicles destroyed and their flagship, you know, uh, warship was sunk by basically amateurs, um, you know, or, or at least not, you know, not a submarine or, you know, another battleship, basically either, you know, pirates or land-based, you know, uh, missiles, whatever it was. But uh, what's your opinion on that? Because there, some of those countries, I mean, Serbia might not be the only one that are sort of notoriously Russo-friendly. No, they're they're not in that region. Um, but your your points are well taken, and um, I think that that in 
that issue in Serbia in particular is extremely important in what's happening right now and whether or not, um, you know, we can help maintain stability and de-escalate or, or prevent any future conflict from starting uh, in that area. There are already, you know, kind of skirmishes going between the Serbian border of Kosovo and there's kind of tit for tat kind of, you know, if you're going to do this, we're going to do that. Um, most recently it was over Serbian or, or Kosovan license plates. But um, I think over the the years, the U.S., I, you know, I'd love to take credit for all the peace in the world and all the movement forward. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I can't do that. Um, but I think the U.S. and specifically the State Department, and there's a very good ambassador there, Chris Hill, who, you know, I'm sure has worked in, and his predecessors have been working very hard on building relationships with the Serbs. And I think the Serbs see value in that. Um, they see value with military and civilian partnerships with the United States. And they have been participating in some, um, you know, military, smaller military exercises in that area. And our diplomatic efforts, again, have, you know, been really robust there. Um, we have people there who, who understand the region. Like I said, the, for, the current ambassador there, he, he's been in other parts of um, Eastern Europe. He was in uh, the State Department. He was in the Embassy of Macedonia. He was in the Embassy of Albania and other areas. So he understands the history of the region, the people very, very well. So I think what we have been doing good or well um, there is that we have been uh, having continuous placements in the Balkans and in this area of people that have experience there. So that, in, in this particular case, has helped Serbia become more neutral when asked to take a side. And I don't think we're asking them, uh, you know, publicly to take a side. I'm sure there, there are discussions in, in the back um, that I'm not particularly aware of, but I know go on all the time. So that's helping them stay neutral in this. And, you know, to their credit, because Russia is very influential there, um, they're extremely influential in all of these countries, specifically because they have networks. They know the people. They've occupied the countries for, you know, years. They also have, um, they have various uh, um, different uh, kind of, they have, they have various different um, programs and organizations in different areas or in different countries that are specific cooperating with Russia. Much like, you know, a Chinese Tibetan center or a Chinese language center, there are same kind of cultural centers uh, that are used for Russia, which we used to have a lot of, but um, took out in the 90s because we thought there was going to be a peace dividend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, that didn't necessarily happen, but I think Russia is one of those countries, or Serbia is one of those countries, excuse me, and also um, Bosnia-Herzegovina is kind of caught in the middle. Uh, and although Montenegro has become part of NATO, they also have a lot of pressure put on them from, from Russia as well. So that makes that alliance very difficult, um, sometimes from a national security standpoint. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if everyone just listened to Lisa Simpson in season one of the, of the Simpsons, they know. I mean, when, when the teacher said, 
tell us what tell give us an example of a conundrum or a paradox i think she said lisa in order to have peace you must prepare for war and so uh, so everyone should have taken that heed yeah peace dividends you know there's always i'm not the problem is that there's always somebody and you don't always know who your enemy of tomorrow might be uh, you know i think very few people predicted uh, Bin Laden, you know, becoming so influential, or you know, or you know, or, or anything of that nature, you know. Now we're this year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy, but Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment and our clean and spacious clubs for one dollar down and ten dollars a month. Join the Judgment Free Zone today. Deal extended to Wednesday, April twelfth. See Home Club for details. We don't prepare for peace, and I, you know, I, I think that when somebody decides to have a ceasefire and put the weapons down, we go, yay, okay, let's go on to the next thing. And you know, that's not enough. We really have to continue to work diligently and build relationships and and engage and I'm, I'm not saying tell people how to live what mm-hmm. i'm saying is to you know learn how to build relationships and partnerships like you would with friends like you would with your children like you you know do in your everyday work life and the, the world is small we're all on here and we need those relationships in order to solve some major complex problems that we have right now globally that, that's for sure um one sticking point seems to be Belarus, which, you know, is, is some say it's a Russian, you know, vassal state, basically. Uh, they have a, by all accounts, a dictator in charge. Uh, but the people there don't seem to be particularly enthusiastic. And it, it, it for whatever reasons or reasons, it, it looks like either Russia's listens or the Belarusian government has you know, develop some sort of a spine anyway and say, no, you're not, you're not using troops to come. I know they've launched rockets from there and they, they probably resupply and things like that, but they haven't really fully entered the war, I guess. And, you know, to, to steal a line that's overused anyway, they haven't crossed a red line for the rest of the world. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a big concern from my point of view. I, you know, like to follow the events that happen there. And I recently um, saw some reporting where, uh, there, there was talk about moving some tactical nuclear weapons in that area. And, um, you know, I mean, an, import, an important thing that we have to realize here is that just because populations oppose what their government is doing, they can't always prevent that from happening, especially when they have a dictatorship at that level. They don't, they don't take you into court. They, you know, take you in and, there are no questions usually and you don't come out. And that's the unfortunate situation that a lot of people live in in a dictatorship or autocratic government. And I think the American people should think about that pretty pretty deeply when they think about some of the things that are happening in their own country. But um, back to your question, yes, Belarus is, a, is definitely a concern. It is a concern because... It, 
is open to allowing Russian troops come in there and Russian weapons come in there. In fact, they had organized a lot of the forces to, um, you know, show some of their intent in, in Belarus prior to the invasion of Ukraine, the, you know, southern Ukraine. So the idea was to put the forces in a surrounding area, not so, you know, we wouldn't know which way they were coming in or would enter and start the invasion. Right. Um, and they were doing, you know, open exercises there prior prior to that as well. So um, it is a concern. And um, I think we still have to keep keep our eyes on that. Yeah. One of the things I'm not sure a lot of people are paying attention to, and frankly, I'm not sure I even knew about it before this, or if I did, it was only vaguely, but... If, if you actually look at the map of Europe and show where Russia is, there's like, you know, the, the tendency is to go further east and look towards Siberia and, and Japan and, and then Alaska. But if, if you actually look west, it, there's like a little strip in Moldova called Transnistria, which is basically Russia. There's a little strip between, I think, Poland and Germany, which is part of Russia. There's like these little enclaves, you know, in other countries, around other borders, that is Russia, and and they have garrisons there. I, I think in in Moldova or Transnistria, if we want to call it Transnistria, um, I think they have fifteen hundred troops. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it probably is if you're Moldova, which is you know an emerging country, you know probably also with the same sort of problem. You know, probably a lot like the American Revolution. There were a lot of people who were loyal to the crown. You know, it's probably there's probably people who were doing better, or you know, all their life they they knew Russian or, or Soviet you know, rule, and they're just like, well, that's the devil I know, you know, and, you know, that's how I live. So, like, how much is the concern about these, sort of these little enclaves, you know, sprinkled into, in, throughout Europe? Because they look little on the map, but if you're, if you're actually there, they're probably the size of, you know, you know, at least the East Coast, you know, New England-ish size state. They're a little smaller, actually, (laughs) Uh, but... I, you know, that I think the, the points you're making are absolutely spot on. Um, these small countries, especially Moldova, Romania, and this area, they're very, very concerned um, that Russia is going to march farther west. They, they don't doubt it in their mind at all that this can happen. Um, I think the fear they have is, do they have the backing um, from the West and from NATO as members of NATO? Uh, which Romania is, um, and Moldova has been, is a very, I I would say it's a a more of a concern for the regional um, nations that are there than it probably is for us. Um, Although it has been highlighted more recently because there were papers that were released um, from from, uh, a Russian source that, that, showed plans to then invade, to also invade Moldova. Right. So this, this is a very big concern to them. They have been very active in their outreach to us in both diplomatic and military manner. And we're trying to, you know, keep our eye on it and also help the best way we can. Yeah, Transnestria was a really interesting thing for me to learn a long time ago. I was like, I think I wrote about that particular strip of land uh, almost 10 years ago now. And I was like, Transnestria, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> I just learned about this tiny little place that was, you know, 
um, a, a real hub for weapons trade, right? Yeah, sure. The belt was using and all this. This was I, some time ago I wrote about it, but I thought to myself, my God, I was in this region for years and I just learned about it. This was, this was a while ago for me, but still. And I mean, this, this is something that we don't think about, right? These are tiny little countries that have, have come up from that grand Soviet Union that we all just put into one pot. And these are real issues between these nations with their culture, with their sovereignty, with their ability to protect themselves and with their fear because they have seen what happened in the past when they have been occupied or taken over. And, um, it, you know, there are still remnants of a lot of the facilities they use for torture and imprisonment and all these kinds of things, you know, including a huge Holocaust museum in Poland. And people are really concerned and scared. And so I think it would behoove us as a nation to really get back to the basics of what is NATO, what is meant by NATO, and is NATO going to be there for what it has promised these nations once they they decided to become members? Um, and so those are things we have to think about. I hope the answer to all of those is yes. I mean, so far they've done pretty well. Um, you know, there, there's always going to be, is, is it not enough? Is it too much? Should we have allowed the MiGs, you know, a year ago from Poland? My answer would have been yes. I mean, some people said, no, you'll call us World War III. And I'm like, no, no you won't. Um, but I don't have to make the decision. Me saying it is far different than, you know, the president of the United States saying it or or the, you know, the prime minister of England or, you know, various titles, pick, pick punk country here. Germany, you know, agreeing was sort of a big step as well. Uh, and, you know, I think most of us probably at some granular level have mixed feelings about Germany be being willing to uh, project power in any shape or way outside of its own borders due to the last century plus three years or, you know, whatever. The Germans also, they, they, they maintain that they were left. They're very apprehensive. They were very apprehensive given um, the, the tanks to mm-hmm. And this is, again, a long history. And often as Americans, and, you know, it's part of our own culture, and we have to understand this, but we we often don't think that much about history. We like to write it off a lot. <laughs> this goes into some of our issues that we're having about, you know, our own historical uh, past as far as race and, and those types of issues go. But we don't like to dig into that. We like to always say, okay, get over it. Let's move. Let's move on. And and when you do that, again, it's not easy to manage a peace once you you're in a post conflict society, especially for a culture that you don't understand or you don't take the time to understand both historically and currently. I know all of one germ, uh, journalist in Eastern. <laughs> His name is Kristaps Anderson. Uh, he he does the Eastern Border podcast, and he says it all the time. That uh, that he's from Latvia, that but Latvia, Estonia, they they are all absolutely sure that if Ukraine fell, that they'd be next. That that there there'd be troops there, and Poland, uh, you know, apparently agrees. It's, uh, it's obviously a stronger country, at least militarily. Yeah. 
you know, it's interesting. They were making some interesting, questionable moves. I mean, Poland and Hungary were sources of political strife. You know, there's some right wing, not in the U.S. right wing, left wing uh, debate, but maybe not so far off. But, you know, the sort of, you know, almost fascist you know, echoes. Uh, and, but Poland was like, uh, uh-uh, we're, we're, we are soundly, uh, you know, we're going to be next. So we know who side we're on. Hungary's been sort of, you know, silent playing both sides, maybe Bulgaria. Hungary's had the same problem with Russian pressure. And I mean, they all have issues with, with pressure. Um, you know, they're close, they're neighbors, right? <laughs> it's, we, we, we are a fortunate, uh, country that we have, two borderless sides and we have very good relationships with both of our, our neighbors. So um, in the case of most European countries, and you can look at other countries in Asia and the Middle East, it's it's much more difficult um, when you're a small country, as you mentioned before, and you don't have the diplomatic or the military uh, deterrence or ability to deter, or the economic ability to deter, which is very important. And and the U.S. has pretty much a stronghold on that particular deterrent for, for its own use in foreign policy tools. I mean, we do have two great neighbors. And I am not trying to say mm-hmm. that what is going on on the southern border is not a problem. Illegal immigration, the, asylum, the very loosened asylum claim rules that makes legal immigration out of something that used to be illegal, you know, drug trade, whatever. All those things are very real concerns of very big problems, but that is not an invasion. Words matter. And it's not an invasion. It's it's a problem. It's a crisis, uh, but it's not an invasion. And people should tone that down a little bit, especially in an era where we have full employment. When I went to college and took Econ 101, which was 1986, they told us then, that six percent was full employment, uh, was was full employment of the economy. Okay, uh, that was changed as the economy grew to four percent. Well, right now we're at three and a half percent, so we are better than full employment. So everything people talk about about the invasion on you know taking our jobs is clearly not correct. Now some of the other things are problems, but it's you know an invasion is another country launching its military at you. You know you know or planes, whatever. Right. Anyway, I didn't I say as a, as a U.S. from a U.S. foreign policy and national security concern, I think it's it, it always is of importance to me how other nations perceive us mm-hmm. and perceive our actions towards immigration or whatever other international issues that we have to deal with. And the first, you know, that's it, part of what's happened today is part of our own own fault and our, our own um, need to decide what kind of nation we want to be and the, the fault i'll say is is not a bad one right because we were a country of that welcomed immigration yeah. we welcomed people this is the life come here come to democracy this was a foundation that most of us lived on for years i mean my relatives came from italy i don't know where yours did i'm sure if people go back it was england or you know, Germany or Poland or some other places. Ukraine. And so this, yeah, and this is part of our, I, I'll, I'll put the fault in quotes because we were a nation of welcoming people here. So now everybody says, yeah, 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 we're going for the American dream. And we're like, whoa, yeah. 
we're not, a, we're not, a, we, we just, we all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, decided that we, we don't want to be the welcoming nation anymore. And, you, you know, you just can't do that overnight when people still perceive us out there as I can't wait to go to America. The first time I saw it, I got goosebumps. It was perfect for me. I felt like we could go anywhere together. <sighs> There's nothing like finding your match on cars.com. With over 50,000 cars added daily and a powerful advanced search, you're sure to discover the one. Cars.com. It's magical. Click or tap to find your perfect match on cars.com today. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy, but Planet Fitness has the cure. Boost your energy with tons of equipment in our clean and spacious clubs for $1 down and $10 a month. Join the judgment-free zone today. Deal extended to Wednesday, April 12th. See Home Club for details. And this is an international perception, and this has to do with our, our how we want to be perceived to be and who we want to be as a nation in relation to the rest of the world. And you know, how we want to have relationships with other people in other countries. So, you know, you speak to immigrants who have spent so much time trying to come here, so much blood, sweat, and tears, either legally or illegally, and there's one common phrase that comes out of every one of them. I am so glad I worked so hard to get here. That is good to hear that they are glad. Uh, My own personal experience is... Somewhat different in some cases, but largely yours as well. The one that was closer was not, but no, nobody cares about that, at least not today. But There are always exceptions to, to, to things, right? And we can't completely generalize because people are emotional and they, they come with different right. you know, histories and lives. And so I'll agree with you there, but we'll move on. Can't solve that problem right now. <laughs> I think the problem with the American dream right now is that a lot of people in America – they're not getting their active REM sleep, so they're you know they're they're not getting their sleeps their dreams are not so restful. So I think if we if we can help our if we can help us all get better REM sleep and actively sleep, then maybe uh, maybe we'll. Be I agree. Kinder. I agree. And until we get together, nobody's going to be able to do that. So That's right. That That's a normal <laughs> right there. Um, we've been dancing around a little bit, but let's get right into the heart of the matter: Ukraine. So, you know, what, what, what's your take on Ukraine? I know that's a very big question, but I don't know how to phrase it any better. Well, it, it is a big question and it's a big answer. You know, nothing is black and white and nothing is clear as day. I think this particular issue has been smoldering um, since, since the demise of the Soviet Union and the resurgence of all of these smaller countries who've decided to become sovereign and who've wanted their sovereignty because of a lot of the hardships that they had to endure under an occupation. And again, I'll put that in quotes because we have sometimes different discussions on whether or not and what an occupation means. But um, a lot of those people felt they were being occupied. They were told to, you know, speak a certain language, behave a certain way, do a certain thing that was totally outside who they were and how they grew up. Um, but this has been smoldering since the, you know, since the peace dividend in the early 90s. Um, Berlin Wall fell. A lot of these nations broke up and broke apart. And although, again, it goes back to the point of being able to keep a peace and manage a peace. And what do you do once you have a different type of 
dynamic. We managed the peace with the Cold War, right? This is how we tried to do it. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. So all of a sudden we have to change the dynamic. And I think to date we still have a hard time doing that. Um, but Russia wanted the U.S. to not bring all of these countries into NATO. They did not want NATO becoming coming closer and closer to their border. They were afraid of that. <laughs> they were afraid of having a strong NATO on their western flank. And uh, I think that in spite of a lot of the diplomatic negotiations and discussions that were going on, this happened under you know, the, the decision through, okay, well, we don't want Russia. We're scared of Russia over here, so we're going to make NATO bigger. And so that dynamic made both parties uncomfortable. And I think at one point, Russia felt it needed to do something about the U.S.-NATO alliance getting too close to its border. Yes, but we, yeah, I mean, it, it only makes sense that they would be uncomfortable about it. But the only reason there is a NATO alliance is because of the Soviet Union and, and you know, Russia's acts post that. So they sort of made their own problem. But, I mean, if we look at history, I think NATO has been involved as an organization actively twice, once, I think, in the Balkans. I'm not even 100% on that. And the second was when the U.S. was attacked by the Taliban. And so they you know, NATO joined us in Afghanistan and not even really fully. Like, you know, some countries did. The and... U.S. was attacked by Al-Qaeda, a terrorist group, not by the Taliban. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Though they were given, they, they were aided and abetted, or at least aided, given comfort and sh- shelter and comfort. But Under the culture, right? That's correct. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so those are the only two times. Uh, so it's not like NATO is really postured as a as an offensive machine. In fact, one of the things that's been interesting to me as a very much a side story um, that I don't think that maybe people pay attention to either is that, you know, these countries have very different militaries. They're not fully integrated. And I think this is a working theory. I'm not sure if this is correct, but one of the reasons some of these countries were so willing to give their Russian-made equipment to Ukraine to bolster them was that they would then replace, say, the 29 MiGs with 29 F-16s, you know, two two technologies ago in the U.S., but those are integrated, more integrated into NATO systems, NATO weaponry, NATO training. That, you know, you can share pilots and technology more e- easily when you have, you know, basically all Boeing, you know, or whoever makes, you know, F-16s and F-35s and whatever, you know, communicating versus you, you got some countries with MiG-29s and MiG-22s and this, that, and the other, and, you know, different. So I think part of it was was part of a larger integration strategy to make NATO more coordinated. Um, I don't know if that really, I mean, if, if that's just an unintended side effect or if that was really part of, you know, somebody's plan. Yeah, I think, you know, I think probably a, a bit of both. Again, I'll go back to the fact that none of, none of these things are ever black and white. Excuse me. And so, so there's always, there's always something else going on. You know, I, I look to look at it as a very, it's a very compound puzzle. You know, it's not, it's, it's not just 3D even. It's probably, you know, you're looking at this 20D kind of 
you know, minority report dynamic where all the pieces are moving all over the place. And you kind of, you really have to be um, well-skilled in watching them all move, not to miss some of what you're saying. And, and I think that a lot of these, these thought processes do, do come into play as far as um, supporting Ukraine and giving them weapons. Although I will say that most of the aid that was given to the Ukraine has come from the U.S. and it's and much of what's come from Europe has been financial, except for the tanks. And then after the tanks, the, the planes came from Poland and um, Estonia. I think Estonia, yeah. Um, and that was there, you know. I mean, they they wouldn't make this decision out of the NATO, out, outside of the NATO kind of uh, garden or their thereof. But no, um, garden's perfect because this is garden. <laughs> there you go. So outside of the NATO garden, I knew that sounded good. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes the countries say, "Look, you know, we're just doing it." Right. Uh, and and. You can tell that if it does happen, the U.S. is probably okay with it because or has put their hands up and said, okay, go ahead, you know, because they don't want anything to do with it. They don't want to be behind it, but they don't want to stop it either. Right. But just like the rest of the world didn't say anything when we sent a thousand Marines to Liberia because we have a special relationship with Liberia. So if France sends troops to Algeria, we're not going to say anything because... They, they have a special watch there. Now, if Tom call us and tell us before that happens, but either we say whatever. Yeah, nobody likes surprises. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially if it's in the form of, you know, battalions or companies, you know, or, you know, company size or, or larger, you know, battalions. Right. Right. Well, what worries me about this conflict is that the, the, the more we get into it and the more um, lethal it becomes, the the less chance we have to get our way out. Yeah. And that is what's worrying me. And, you know, when the Soviet Union dissolved, we were very conscious about our relationship with Russia. And I think that was a very important diplomatic priority. And I think we became less conscious of it over time because because of some of their behavior and because we were still trying to figure out what post-Cold War international relations looks like or should look like. And on top of that, we were involved in two very large-scale wars for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of people. And so a lot of these other dynamics happen in the background when you're not paying attention. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And, you know, I, I think on a very high level, which which is to mean the site would be blurry, I think we sort of thought, well, Russia's in Europe. They're a you know, historically Christian country. You know, we're friendly with Europe. We're a historically Christian country. The, you know, those things, you know, should connect us. And that is, like, against the entire history of Russia and, and pretty much all of its forebears. Though it also is against the history of, of a lot of other countries in Europe and its forebears that are now very good. Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, half the countries in Europe are named after Germanic tribes. But, you know, no, no, nobody you know thinks about France was named for the Franks so that England is named for the, the Angles. You know, it, it, it's it's long been forgotten in the, in the mists of time. 
Well, go to what, you know, I mean, what you're saying there, yeah, we could say they're Christian, but one of the biggest instigators of conflict in that region are two Christian sects, I guess I, w- I would call them, you know, the Orthodox Church versus, you know, the, the more Catholic side. So they're, you know, I, I even had someone say to me the other day, well, you know, our Easter is an Orthodox Easter, so it's later. And, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of agnostic at this point, so I don't really follow these holidays anyway. So I, I'm happy for you whenever your Easter is. But, yeah, but, there's the two different calendars, Julianic and the Gregorian calendar. I think and they I- have gone back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire causing problems in this area. And Putin right now uses the Orthodox Church Yes, as a primary part of separation and division of populations in that part of the country, so it's instigating conflict instead of bringing people together and more resilient and being able to say, "I, you know, I don't need to be there. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I am not going to be be part of this Russian influence." strategy to make me do something that is counter to how I want to behave. Sure. But no, because emotions get in and they're like, yeah, you Orthodox people, you Catholic people, you this, we're going to and we don't like you and now we're going to fight. <laughs> you're like thinking, whoa. <laughs> it's the top bishop in the you know, clergyman in the Russian Orthodox Church is basically saying, you, you, you know, we have the control of your soul. You know, there's no pathway yes. to heaven for you unless you listen to us. That, that's gonna that's gonna play with a lot of people for sure, absolutely. Um, now, Russia has reportedly lost somewhere in their neighborhood of two hundred thousand troops, deceased, you know, or injured. I, yeah, I don't know if anyone will ever know the real numbers. And untold thousands of vehicles, which must be untold billions uh, of dollars, probably tens of billions of dollars uh, of of equipment. And I know that they've emptied the prisons, and I know that also there's the Wagner Group, which is, you know, sort of a semi-private, you know, uh, army that works sort of closely with Putin, but not exactly. And who knows how many casualties they've had. I know that they've just been throwing prisoners into the meat grinder to, you know, get shot up and find out where the positions are. But, like, what what is the, you know, ha- has Putin dug his heels in, too deep that he can't possibly save face. I mean, all these, all these people who are outspoken against him somehow fall out of hotel windows, uh, you know, and, and, and things like that are happening right and left. You know, often when they're on vacation with their wives and daughters and they're found dead in a bathtub. I mean, you know, nothing weird about that at all. Um, you know, Jamal Khashoggi rightfully caused worldwide outrage, but no one really seems to be talking about that. Maybe they're just numb. Uh, but is he too, is he in too deep or is there a point where he's going to cut his losses and say, all right, I, I got to go, or I'm going to, or I'm going to lose my country to, to a general who's promised better things to everybody else or someone or an oligarch who's powerful enough to uh, challenge me or a Caesar thing. Like the, the hundred senators will, uh, you know, the Ides of, he'll have his own Ides of March. Question. I, I think he's digging himself deeper and deeper that it's going to be, and I, I, I think I mentioned that earlier, that it's going to be very difficult for us to get out of um, this conflict uh, until it becomes way more lethal than it already is. Um, one, of the, one of the things that 
I think people, and we all need to remember, is the more power you accumulate, sometimes the, the more power you think you have, meaning that you're untouchable. Right. You know, your, your, your life is never going to end. You're going to find some way to live forever. And it's that whole idea that you're never going to die. But in addition to that, you know, I mean, it, it's very hard to start some kind of mission like this and then say, wake up the next morning and say, oh, you know what? I made a mistake. I shouldn't have gone there. Like Iraq, we're still very, you know, we, we and, 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 you know, continue, I, I, you know, and look at what happened in Afghanistan. You know, it's very difficult to find a military officer saying, you know, I spent all this time, effort, and blood, sweat, and tears, and I, I can't tell you that I shouldn't have been there. Right. You know, and I, I feel for that deeply. It's you, you are giving, and you, you are believing you're doing something in the right, and it's very hard for a very powerful person like Putin um, to say he's done something wrong or he made a calculated mistake and it's you know we always those in power want to stay in power so it's very even more difficult if he were to say that to him to even perceive of the fact that he's going to lose any type of power because their main goal is always to maintain that position and power especially in, in autocracy this is why we like democracies or we hope you know people <laughs> move to democracies because people then are not given that ultimate power over others. And so what is, you know, I mean, and this is, this is the, the bazillion dollar question, not even the million dollar question anymore right. is how are we going to get out of this with him? And I'm sure there's people scurrying in diplomatic circles everywhere trying to figure this stuff out and what oh, they sure. can do. Um, but it's not an easy, an easy way, an easy way out. And I think one of the real factors, and I'll, I'll pause after this, is going to be China and President Xi. And I think he is going to be the way out uh, and, and find a way to economically allow people to to figure out what they need to do because they do not want to see an all-out war. And I, I would, if I were President Biden in a day, I would almost give him that win because it is way too dangerous to have nuclear powers at this brink, at this moment. And we've learned this from history. We know this from history. We get it from history. You know, Kennedy, Bay of Pigs from history. And so it's time to find a way out, and and she might just be, and I think Zelensky knew this, right? He's invited the president, President Xi, to come to to um, the Ukraine and visit. I had heard, and I'm not sure how how reliable this was. Maybe you know, but when they were talking about putting tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, that it was Xi who reached out to Putin and said, "Don't do that." I don't know that for certain, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. And I, I again, I think it would be it's it, that is something that we need to we need to refigure out why we have had such a great relationship with China in uh, historically in the past you know many decades, and why we need to 
refigure that relationship. Yeah. Well, that's said, also very dangerous on our Pacific front. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I, yeah. That would be a whole nother show. And I, you know, I know that, as you said, nothing is not complex. Everything is complicated. <laughs> but, you, know, is. A, you know, China is, is, seems to be mostly interested in Asia and having, you know, rich countries buy lots of their stuff for cheap. Um, that, that's sort of like their, you know, their, their business plan, uh, which has expanded a little bit. But, you know, if I'm Japan and South Korea and Australia and Vietnam and Thailand, I, you know, I'm very concerned about, it. obviously, if I'm Formosa, Taipan, Taiwan, whatever word you want to use for that island, I'm very concerned about that. But, you know, uh, but you're right. We, we have to figure out a way to reset the relationship with China so that it's less adversarial and, and maybe just, you know, we're more competitors in the world business wise, but, you know, but, but never ever would we, you know, shoot at each other. Yeah, exactly. And it's always been a very, a very robust economic relationship. Right. And we saw that um, clearly during the pandemic, I mean, and, and to date getting some of the supply systems back up and some of the trust in a lot of the goods that are, are being made for us in China and coming here. And, and, you know, maybe we don't want to be so dependent on that. And I, I, I think that that's a, that's a, a very legitimate discussion to be had. Sure. Um, and, but we need to have these discussions and we need leaders who are able to have these discussions. You know, I, 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 I sometimes what keeps me up at night is, is my leadership and the behavior in Congress and and in some of these parties and the divisions and the, you know, I don't like what you say, so I'm not going to talk to you anymore. This just does not solve anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area, and I remember Newark when <laughs> it was hard to breathe, right? And mm-hmm. we had to have a tri-state union to figure that out and, and make sure that we had clean air for everybody. And this is what we need to do. It's not, you know, I don't like you, so <laughs> yeah, well, we'll cancel you out for something. But these are tough, tough things to talk about. Right. Well, Reagan wouldn't have gotten anything done, whether you like what he did or not, without <laughs> Tip O'Neill, who was a Democrat. I mean, that, 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 that was that was the way it was. They, they, you could disagree, but you, you could come to deals and arrangements. And, you know, politics is the art of compromise. It's to make policy. It's, it, it's not it's yes. not it's not to fight and, and fight only for your, you know, your bottom 17%, you, you know, you have to, you know, worry, you know, more about the 65% in the middle and, and if things are going pretty well, you know, that 17% gets increasingly smaller because people are doing, people tend not to complain as much when they're, when they're doing well. Uh, anyway, I've gotten us completely off track. We didn't even touch on, on <laughs> what I originally uh, recruited you for, but one oh. thing, but one thing that's probably more important than was my my little my little show notion in the beginning was something that you said that you've been studying and and trying to inform others on how you get out of war and manage peace. So I know nothing is simple, but if you had like a I don't know a four step or an eight step plan, I mean I'm sure somewhere you've written down mm-hmm. something like like your new green deal. Like what what is your <laughs> path to peace and maintaining peace? Well, I, you know, I mean, first of all, I think that we're, we are, the U.S. is the, the most powerful nation in the world at this point. There is no doubting that. I mean, we are, we, we are, we are being um, irresponsible right now, I think, because uh, we have a stretched military. We have a, 
internal political problem, um, but there there are large scale problems out there. And I, you know, I think first of all, we need to get our house in order. That's that's my first step. You know, we really need to get on the same page as Americans and understand what our responsibility as the greatest power in the world is, and then how we take care of our people best in order to make us strong throughout and holistically. You can't have one strong party and another weak party. You can't have one strong side and another weak side. Your house is going to fall down. So we need to get our political house in order and decide who we are as a nation. Now, if that decision comes that we're a nation of military might, okay, we got to figure out how that's going to work for us. So in my view, I think we need to pull back and understand what our military is for and get them back to that foundational place that they are to defend the national interests of this nation. And they're not the police. They're not out there to go get, you know, the bad guy. That's what they're there to do. How do we do that and how do we do that well? In addition to that, we my third step would be, and I'll, I'll leave it at three because that, that's how I've been taught in school to do it. Um, well, three, that's fine. Is really um, recalibrate our diplomatic house and our diplomatic agency. The State Department needs change. They still operate under a Cold War kind of dynamic. They are structured as that old diplomatic, you know, um, where I go to the party, I have a drink, I talk to my friends, we have a deal. And, you know, although that's kind of the stereotype, we really need to get a more diverse um, diplomatic core, a more uh, engaged diplomatic core, and a more current diplomatic core. Our diplomats have not changed the trajectory or their learning, probably since inception. The military does it all the time. Diplomacy needs to change, and we need to find value in diplomacy that is equal to our military, not better force. So those are my priorities. How that comes about, i got to get really good people. (laughs) And people who want to think and engage, right? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, Folks, I'm not going to make her stay longer to go over what my original notion was. I'll just give you a broad scope of what it was uh, that I I had learned much to my surprise, and it shouldn't be to my surprise, that the different nations throughout Europe have different military doctrines, and that basically Poland, their entire military doctrine is to face a Russian invasion, basically the kind of war Ukraine's fighting now, basically facing East, but that a country like Greece or Italy, that their military doctrine may be limited to certain interests, but mostly to keeping the waters and the, the navigable areas of the Mediterranean basically clear. Uh, you know, while, while France may have a little bit of a more complicated one, and I sort of wanted to go through that, but uh, I think we talked about things that are probably... I can come back. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I hope you will. Uh, great. Yeah. Uh, I will say really briefly before we go that um, we are looking at those doctrines right now and seeing how we can align them better so nations 
are closer in a win-win for their interests. Yeah, you I, I think could. that's hugely important. So we'll talk about that some other time. No, that's great. I, I, I offer accepted. I appreciate that very much. I, I mean, I was going to ask off air, but now I don't have to. Yay. <laughs> well, last thing for me to do. That's terrific. Anyway, so is there anything that I asked you that I should have asked you, or is there any point that, that, that you didn't make that you wanted to make because I didn't get to it? Um, no, I, I, I just want to say that I really enjoyed the conversation. I, you know, I, I like getting off topic a little bit because it shows the importance of, of how many things you have to take into consideration to think about an issue or a subject, right? It, it's not just one thing or two things. And in addition to that, no, I enjoyed my time here. I'd love to come back and talk about doctrine a little bit. I spent some time on doctrine, so great. We can do that. And well, as I, I said, know, happy to come back. Yeah, I'll be thrilled. And I, I will make that introduction we talked about. I'll probably do a little email chain and then get, get myself out of it. Um, but okay, thank you very much. This has been Professor Pr- Patricia Di Gennaro. I keep wanting to say want to say Holly Gennaro from Die Hard. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> That's all I want to do, uh, but I can't because I'm a grown-up, allegedly. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you for your insight and, and giving us all the information, and hopefully the audience learns something. You absolutely learned something. That's no way that you couldn't. Uh, and it's interesting that we talked about this. on The show probably won't drop for another week or two, but on today, April 4th, a former president of the United States was indicted. And whatever you think of that, that wouldn't happen in Russia today or, you know, some other countries. All right. So, it, right. <laughs> <laughs> they kill him. <laughs> exactly. It would be a, a summary execution. So it would be like Robespierre. So uh, with that, take heart. I suppose that we are still a system of laws and, and, and justice, even if you don't exactly like the way it applies or always turns up. There, it turns out that there there is that. And as many people have said, we have the worst form of government except every other kind of government that's been tried before. Um, so anyway, except for Atlantis, which I'm not sure was real. So anyway, we've hit the hour. I thank you so much. And welcome welcome to the professor as to being now going to short, soon forthwith, henceforth going to be a multiple-time guest. I don't know if we'll get past two or not, but hopefully. Uh, And everyone, check us out. Give us ratings. Give us reviews. And hopefully you'll listen. Oh, is there anywhere that people can or should follow you? Do you you, you use social media? Do you... Is there a course they can audit? Is anything like that you want to promote? I I am most active on Twitter. It's at Trisha's Take. And I do have a website as well. It's patriciadegenaro.com. You can find everything there. Excellent. Book and anything like that? Okay, great. Perfect. Well, at least I remember that in the last part. So, yeah, I'm only semi-professional. All right. Thanks again, (laughs) folks. You'll hear from us again next week. Is your new year still falling flat? Do you avoid stairs with multiple steps? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy or low E. But Planet Fitness has the cure. With clean, spacious clubs and tons of equipment, you can boost your energy after one workout. Leave low E behind and find your big fitness energy at Planet Fitness. Join in the free PF app for $1 down, $10 a month. Join the judgment-free zone today. Deal extended to Wednesday, April 12th. See Home Club for details. 
92% of households that join Peloton early in the year are still active a year later. Yeah, if you like cycling to EDM. Not just EDM. Try cycling to Broadway hits, take a scenic hike in Iceland on our treadmill, or row to some 80s jams. Because I have so much free time. Whether you have 30 minutes or just five, Peloton can fit any schedule. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton tread, row, or bikes risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash try.